Um, I'm Priya Volchi. I'm Winona Guo. We're the co-founders of Choose and co-authors of Tell Me Who You Are. And this is Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. Yeah. episode 115. My name is Gerardo Munoz, and we are out here remixing the conversation on race, power, and education. I've been really uh, fortunate these last few weeks to be in contact with Taylor Lyons from Moms for Social Justice out of Tennessee. Taylor, how are you? I am doing as well as one can be living in the state (laughs) of Tennessee right now. Yeah, no doubt. And we're going to really get into um, just the battle that's happening in your state. And it has uh, really major implications for the rest of us, uh, regardless of what state you're living in, regardless of political profile. This stuff is everywhere. Um, So just thank you for joining us. What you said reminds me a little bit of a few years ago, Kevin, and I got to interview Dr. Bettina Love of the abolitionist uh, teaching sort of manifesto. It's not what it's called. and one thing she said, we asked how she was doing. She says, I'm good. It's good to be here. And in light of everything, it is good to be here <laughs> as opposed to no longer being here. <laughs> and so I think that is, um, it's just really difficult. So let's start off with just a little bit of um, of an overview of the work that you do. And then we can kind of get into the the work as it looks in Tennessee and what those uh, national implications are. So uh, tell us a little bit about who Moms for Social Justice are. Um, you know, who, yeah. what is this org? And then we can kind of <laughs> roll it into what is it that made you kind of feel like work needed to start happening? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Um, You know, Moms for Social Justice is a social activist organization that is comprised primarily, and this may shock you, uh, of moms. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Uh, that said, we're not. It's not entirely made of of moms. We have lots yeah. of dads and aunties and students, and you know we're thrilled to welcome anyone. We basically just say, you know, if you want to help us build a more equitable community, you're you're a moms for social justice. There you go. I love it. So yeah, we we began back in 2017, and it was just uh, four moms in my living room, and you know we have grown from from those four moms since then to several thousand in our local community and several chapters throughout the United States and we're continuing to grow. So it's, it's an exciting thing for us. Yeah, that's fantastic. So six years about that, that you've been doing this work. Um, I love the notion of, you know, uh, everyone's a mom for social justice in this organization. I kind of feel like people for social justice just doesn't have the same ring to it, (laughs) you know, and I think 
and I think it does really uh, name the fact that um, more often than not, in a lot of our communities, it is mothers who are doing the um, engagement with schools and who are kind of the point people when it comes to schools. I know that my spouse was way more in the loop and may still be more in the loop um, as to what's going on in my kid's school. And so I think it's important to know that. So, um, the, you know, when I see... I see a name like Moms for Social Justice. I get super excited. It makes me think of my mom. In fact, uh, shout out Sarah McGregor, Mama. She's a loyal. <laughs> she's a loyal listener for about seventeen minutes of every podcast, and then she's like, "I want to do something else now." I get it. Um, I mean, that's, she's got a lot to do. I'm sure <laughs> she's got a lot to do, and she's been listening to me talk for forty-seven years. She's she's heard what I have to say. It's fine. Um, but my mom was always a person that was involved in community, like when um the united farm workers called on a, a call for a boycott on grapes like we just didn't have grapes in the house and um and i joke about how i didn't actually eat a grape until i like was done with college and you know all that kind of stuff and so my really mom was re definitely, rebellious move there. oh man yeah definitely i'm like i'm gonna eat grapes i don't care what you say mom <laughs> um <laughs> but you know my my mom kind of set that example so it kind of warms my heart to know that there's this organization out here um what was it that told you all as a group that this needed to be more than just a handful of mobs in your living room talking about stuff that they were concerned about? How did you know you needed to organize? So, you know, this was really early in the previous administration. And, you know, as you can recall, it was just outrage after outrage day after day, whether it was, you yeah. know, putting Betsy DeVos as education <laughs> secretary, defunding, you know, public broadcasting or, you know, taking away trans rights in the military. It was yeah. just, it was just, you know, overwhelming. It's almost uh, as if they had a list of things pre-prepared. Right? It felt like they, a checklist. You know, it just kind of felt like they had planned this. <laughs> or like a moral panic bingo card they were playing moral over there. Bingo. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, so for us, though, that uh, really pivotal moment was the hate rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's just a few hours away from us yeah. geographically. Yeah. And, you know, we had neo-Nazis, white supremacists, openly marching in our streets, yelling, you know, you will not replace us not and bearing swastikas. Us. And that was the moment that, you know, we sat, we sat across from each other and really had to ask ourselves and each other 20 years from now, do we want to look at our kids and say in this moment of great reckoning that we, we shared our outrage on social media. Right. That right. It just didn't feel I had sufficient. a very strongly worded tweet in that exactly. moment. You and, have no idea how strong and, that tweet was. And I don't regret it at all. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that's deep. That's deep. Yeah. So our, I mean, our first impulse was to look around for an organization that already existed. We didn't want to reinvent the will. And that's when um, wheel, sometimes the Tennessee comes out, not will. <laughs> it's all good. No, man, we, uh, two dope nation has no borders, which I think is going to <laughs> outrage a lot of uh, a lot of people on the other side, like we have open borders. Anyone can be a citizen anytime. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> we welcome all um, accents. Accents are music. So. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we couldn't find an organization that was really friendly to parents with young children. We noticed a real gap in activism. It, it tended to be like young kids who had the time and energy and like the, mm -hmm. the older hippies, God love them, that had that time. Um, but there was this. <laughs> This Maybe less space. energy, but that time. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, 
they're they, they're reliable they show up to the protests yes. and we love them for that um yeah. but yeah it was it was difficult to find this space and activism for parents with young children so really without knowing what we were doing or, or how we were going to do it we we started that organization and we just thought that we may not be the only parents in our community who felt this way and it turned out we were right yeah. several thousand parents in our community yeah. who felt that way and then it began to spread from there organically yeah i feel like it, it's interesting it's it's similar origin story to this mm -hmm. literal podcast like kevin and i started talking a little bit about what voices weren't out there in terms of education justice and a lot of times it was black and brown um educators voices and so we must have launched right before you all launched. We were, it was late 2016. It was about a month and a half after that election. And I don't even remember us having a specific reason that we were like, nah, man, now we got to do this. It just seemed like the stars aligned at that point. And, um, you know, and we were hoping others would be interested in the conversations we were hosting. And it turns out that it's it's needed dialogue. Um a couple of things that I kind of want to wrap into this next question. So you're in Tennessee. It's wild right now <laughs> from a policy perspective. And, you know, I'm part of this Voices for Honest Education Fellowship. And a lot of our work in the last few weeks has been how do we support um, teachers in Tennessee and folks in Tennessee, kids in Tennessee, uh, knowing that all these things are happening. And so you know, I'm I'm good friends with Cami Lunsford. She was uh, Tennessee Teacher of the Year, the year that I was Colorado Teacher of the Year. Um, the funniest and most passionate human that the I've met of ours. quite some yeah. time. Oh man, she is. Um, she is her, <laughs> as the kids would say. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, even Monica Washington, who represents Texas, but she's got roots in Tennessee and has been kind of in those spaces. So I want to hear a little bit about the grassroots efforts and strategy that Moms for Social Justice is using. And, you know, let's start talking about what some of these uh, challenges that are happening in Tennessee off before we started recording, you started, you, you mentioned that there is some really awful legislation that looks like it's about to be signed into law. So let's try to let's try to put all that stuff kind of together. What are the things that are happening and what is the strategy of uh, Moms for Social Justice? Yeah, that's such a, that's such a tough question because we've had to we've had to change uh, the way that we operate so drastically in the last year and a half. What's yeah. what's bizarre is we were able to operate um, really under the radar, I guess, for, for lack of a better way to put it, for sure. the first couple of years of our existence. We didn't we didn't garner too much attention despite the fact that we were doing rather controversial things uh, given where we are geographically. Given where you are. Yeah. We were having yeah educational workshops on you know dismantling um inner racism and white supremacy and uh, workshops on parents uh, relating to their yeah. trans kids. Yeah. You know I don't think we could do those events today without literal Nazis showing up and protesting. So our, our tactics have had to um, really, I feel like we've had to learn a whole new way of operating in the last year and a half. It yeah. feels in some way that we are constantly on the defensive now. We are putting out fire after fire after fire after fire 
as opposed to what we were doing in our first couple of years in existence, which was putting what we felt was good energy out into the community and not, we're still able to do that. Um, but not to the extent at which we would like to, because we are expending so much bandwidth and energy fighting these, these culture wars and these, these manufactured moral panics. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is what it, that's exactly what it's felt like even in the last eight to 10 months where it's sort of, it's the reality is that to me, there's a threshold of human decency. Right. And for years and I was born and raised here in Colorado and Colorado was very red when I was a kid and it's kind of moved into kind of blue territory and my state has all kinds of weird ways to account for that um <laughs> but um but it always felt like there was some sort of moral threshold they won't go this far they won't they won't do this thing and it seems like these bad actors have no moral threshold and they whatever it is that that we think that a decent human being would never do they they seem to pivot to those strategies really quickly and so it's like you hear all these ideas of how how can we be proactive in movements and how can we be proactive to just meet the needs of people and that gets really difficult when the other side just won't play by the same rules of engagement. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. We've we've made this um, very similar argument to our school board that it's very uh, challenging to have any sort of civil discourse with people who will call you a a pedophile yeah. or a, a groomer without yeah. any foundation or shred of evidence. They just yep. they they misuse these terms flippantly of the, the most, you know, egregious and horrific accusations, yeah. La- you know, launching those kinds of names at our librarians and our counselors and yeah. parents, you know, like myself and our organization who don't subscribe to their, you know, puritanical uh, That's right. extremism. That's right. That's and right. and ha- you can't have any sort of uh, civil conversation there There's when no you're discourse. taking it to that extreme. Because here's the thing, we could sit down and talk about um, what books are appropriate for particular children. We're always willing to have that conversation that you as a parent have the parental prerogative to determine what your child can read. That's your right. Yeah. It is not your right to dictate what my child reads. That's right. Right? Right. To me, that that's a conversation that we should be able to have in a in a decent and, you know, rational manner. And it's just not it's just not happening. And I'm a big believer in naming things. Right. So let's name this. Why is it impossible to have that? Why is there no discourse around this? If these so-called parental rights groups, um, I was really excited a few months ago to learn the term AstroTurf. (laughs) Um, which I'll, which I'll let you actually explain the term AstroTurf, but these so-called parental rights groups claim that they're for parental rights, but, and yet there's no, there's no talking to them. There's no discourse that exists. Let's, you know, let's name what that is. Yeah. So in your estimation, kind of being on, on some of these front lines, what is it that prevents them from engaging in discourse? I mean, 
they are, there's a whole lot of overlap of Christian nationalism. So you have religious hysteria happening there as well. Um, so, you know, you have, you have a mindset that without question is telling you that, that the people who think opposite you are, are evil. Like it's not a difference of opinion. It's not a different ideology or perspective. It's evil. And when they're coming from that place, it's really hard to see the humanity in the person who's sitting across from you and disagrees with you. Like I come from an evangelical background. I'm the daughter of a Southern Baptist preacher. So I, I understand that landscape very well. Uh, It's really, really difficult for them to see outside of that insular bubble that they're in and that not thinking to, to really consider someone else's perspective. And it's just, it's just gone to the extreme in which, you know, things, at least where we're at have gotten flat out dangerous. You know, people are being um, doxxed and it's just, it's scary that, that we can't, you know, have these discussions in a rational manner. Yeah. But that's, I'm going to, I'm going to hang on this point for just another second and then we'll kind of get into the next question but so some of the data that has been shared with us in our fellowship and in the work that we're doing through uh through nickel through ecra through rally and the national network of state teachers of the year is that the data suggests to us that the majority of of folks who haven't taken a side necessarily in this debate are um, persuadable. That that's the that's the term that's used. Is that they're persuadable? Um, do you agree with that? In your experience, do you feel that the majority of folks are actually persuadable? I do because we've seen examples of it um, in our community. We you know we frequently show up at our school board meetings and make public comment. And what we appeal to is our. Um, our common rights as Americans, right? Intellectual freedom is an American right. Uh, This country does not ban books historically. Uh, Book banning has never been looked at favorably historically. Mm -hmm. And when we make that argument, uh, and what I just said to you, that of course you can choose what your children read. Mm -hmm. I mean, to to a certain extent, who knows what they're sure. doing in their bedrooms? I know what. No, yeah, <laughs> I, I know the Anne Rice I was reading when I was fourteen. <laughs> yeah, but there's a point at which kids are going to want to read exactly. what they're going to want to read. Yeah, a, a library is a is a deeply uh, sacred place where an individual yeah. can go and choose uh, what speaks to them, and yeah. and that seems to really appeal to people not only moderates, but we've had people like unapologetically on the right reach out to us and say, we don't agree with anything else that you stand for, but yeah. we don't agree with censorship. We're with yeah. you on that. Yeah. So that's been interesting. Well, it's like that great us. Voltaire quote. What's the Voltaire quote that I, dis- I disagree with you wholeheartedly, but I'll fight to the death for your, your right to, okay, so I'm butchering it, but that, that, that there's a principle kind yes. of at stake. And, and I think that while you know, from my positionality as a, as an educator who focused a lot on ethnic studies, like I know that there are definite gaps in who that freedom was extended to over the, over a period of centuries 
you know, since the original colonies. But that that's that's actually encouraging to hear um, that from folks. And I just a, like a little thing that you said libraries are sacred. I think that's such a beautiful statement. Um, this year, my spouse and I had the experience of, and this it's been a few years now of my own um, child who's graduating high school in a few short weeks, um, wow. giving us a Christmas. I know it's wild. It is like, I have literally raised officially since last week, I have raised a human to adulthood and that is wild. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but thank you. I hope. Um, and it just um, feels like a monumental task from my it, point of view. So I, yeah, that's a and it doesn't, you know, and, and then you also realize that like parenting never ends. And so it's not like, you know, that's it. But one of the things that has been really beautiful over the last few years is getting a Christmas list full of book titles and realizing that we share a lot of the same book taste, but my kid has actually identified their own light. And it's just, it's such a beautiful thing to see, oh, wow, you have like this interest that I had no idea or these authors that you know about that I didn't tell you about. And it's like amazing to talk about books with our kids. And so it's it's a small sort of tangent on what you're saying, no, but it's not really. And that um, that makes me emotional, to be honest, because. And I'll share some pictures um, with you that we have taken in the schools that we volunteered in. But when you have primarily uh, black high schools, we have one of the, the few remaining 100 percent black high schools left in the country. Wow. When you take photos of these kids standing in their library and the shelves, many of them are empty. Hmm. And unreal. And almost without failure, these books that are are being uh, put on these these challenged lists are by black and brown and queer authors. So you're going to take books away from the kids who already don't have books. And we know, we know for a fact, the data tells us that it's not enough for kids to know how to read. Kids have to fall in love with reading. That's, that's the difference in them yeah. becoming lifelong learners, lifelong readers. So they yeah. have to read things that speak to their personal experience. Yeah. And it's, it's that personal experience and those perspectives that these, these AstroTurf parental right groups are desperately trying to erase from the conversation yeah. and it feels like such a violation it's such violence yeah I, you know so now it's my turn to feel kind of emotional on this like for me as as a chicano growing up in denver's east side my schools didn't have books or stories that i felt i could relate to and I've always been really ambivalent about my identity. I think this is part of why is that there was always just this absence of me represented in the curriculum that was in my in my schools. And I think I really became aware of it by about my sophomore or junior year of high school, where I'm kind of like, where are where are these authors? You know, do, you know. And I remember being a senior in high school and having my advanced placement U.S. history teacher state that the reason we didn't have Chicano history or what was at that time in 
in Colorado called Hispano American history was because um, Hispanics are generally a semi-literate group um, who don't document their history. It's all oral history and that's not real history. And the rage I felt <laughs> in that moment was the hard, the, the hardest thing about it is, I, is I knew in my heart that it wasn't true, but I didn't have anything to back it up with. So I showed him, I majored in Latin American studies and ethnic studies. Um, I discovered the great quote by Jorge Luis Borges that he had always viewed heaven as some kind of a library, even though Borges was a fascist, but we will go in another direction with that. Um, <laughs> you know, so I mean, what what you're saying, I mean, it's, it's so discouraging because what I have, what I experienced in my education over 30 years ago is being repeated in a lot of places. And I was naive enough to think, I taught for 23 years, I was naive enough to think um, until a few years ago, hold up, things are getting better. Like, like there's research around the benefits of ethnic studies and diverse literature and diverse classrooms and getting to know people. I mean, it's so elementary, getting to know people from different backgrounds and different experiences. Like I, we're getting somewhere, like we are getting somewhere. And now it, it feels like, and, and you know, I'm told that it's just a backlash. It's just a backlash. It's a death throes, right? Um, but it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to minimize it like that. I, I get so frustrated and we as an organization get so frustrated with the amount of times we've been told those exact words by people in power, that these culture wars uh, will go away, um, that they're not worth fighting. And yet we are watching school boards being chipped away and being replaced by, you know, Christian nationalists. We are watching, you know, books being banned by the thousands. And it's not just, it's not just happening in the red states, to your point. It's happening everywhere. And, yeah. and, you know, these are well-orchestrated, well-funded uh, organizations with the same goal, which is to piece by piece dismantle public education and push towards privatization. And if if we minimize it and, and try to tell ourselves it's going to go away, I think we're going to find ourselves in a really scary place for public education in about 10 years. Yeah, I, I, I do think that I don't think I know. There are more of us. There are more of us yeah. who choose. That's what the data would suggest, right? Yes. Love, inclusivity, tolerance, all of those things. Um, but we cannot sit on the sidelines for this war. We cannot. Uh, parents have to get involved. You have to show up because you know who is? They are. The other side. And they're yeah. loud. And, and yeah. they claim to speak for all parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the astroturf thing right oh 100 <laughs> percent. let's uh, talk about that real quick because i want people like i didn't know this term until a few months ago and i think it's critical that people understand this term because what it's done is helped me to distinguish between movements that i see so can you tell us a little bit about that term Okay, so, so the difference between the organization that I represent, we are a genuine grassroots organization. We started with actual people and we have built our organization from the ground up. There's no outside funding. There's no, yes. there's no talking points. Um, we, we do what we do on our own. Yeah. What's happening now on the right, uh, on the far, I won't even say the right, on the far right. 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 <laughs> 
are these uh, different parental rights group. Moms for Liberty is, is one of the biggest ones that's popping up all over the place. And this organization was founded by um, very wealthy, very connected <clears throat> uh, women. And out of the gate, in their first few months of existence, had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth, worth of funding. Wow. <clears throat> had national media. So they did a, an entire national media circuit. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. No, it's all good. I can imagine. You, you don't get that kind of um, you don't get that kind of support, that kind of funding, if there aren't big organizations uh, propping that up. So it gives the impression that it's a a groundswell, a grassroots. Um, yeah you know, movement of parents wanting to take back their, their children's education. Right. What it really is, is a very well-funded, you know, heritage foundation, Christopher Rufo uh, (laughs) movement where, where these organizations are given money and they are given talking points. It's why they, it's why when you watch um, school board meetings from across the country where these people show up, it's why yeah. they all are using the same talking points. It's, it's why they're the all language. attacking the same books. It's because they're being given a playbook. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it is wild. Um, so let's, let's shift the focus onto, onto your movement and, um, and some of the other genuinely kind of grassroots movement what what is it that the wider public needs to understand about the movement that you're a part of so you know we're not all in tennessee and then to your point um you know uh my friend takara negayoshi who's also one of the voices for honest education fellows he and i have been doing some thought partnering around what honest education looks like in blue states in states that seem like they're culturally safe strongholds so he's in massachusetts i'm in colorado these are places that are democratic strongholds However, <laughs> we know that we're not <laughs> yeah. immune from this stuff. I mean, we, we just, here in Colorado, we just had this massive battle over the new, more inclusive social studies standards. We have, we have one bad actor on the state board. Um, and if I could remember his name, I would say it, um, mm-hmm. who uh, refuses to, to co-sign on anything that suggests any type of inclusivity or open-mindedness. So what what is it that the wider public needs to understand about what's happening in your state, what's happening with these movements and, and that kind of thing? Well, the, you know, the legislation that's coming, you know, down the pipeline here in Tennessee is really a model for what's happening all over the South. Uh, Tennessee flies under the radar a lot, you know, Florida gets the limelight, but we're, we're right there. (laughs) I think our, our governor, Florida's governor doesn't have the good sense to like have a low profile about stuff, (laughs) right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, right now we've, um, we've seen our, our trans rights be stripped away. Um, from parents knowing, knowing, and and being able to deem what's fit for their own children, uh, we are we are the first state in the nation to outlaw drag performance for children. What you think does not translate into education, but it does because they are mm-hmm. they are conflating all of these things. Like any 
any sort of representation from the LGBTQT community for children is obscene. Yeah. And so that that's how it trickles into the school so that we cannot and, and have any to, books with. Yeah. Go ahead. And not to put too fine a point on it, but the thing is that this isn't the way that these laws are crafted and these policies are crafted. It's also a prohibition against stating that a kid has two moms or two dads. 100%. Like you, you can't even say that. And yep. so, um, yeah, not, you know, a, a, just a cursory kind of search on Tennessee, you know, legislation. Um, there have been all of these pieces to make it nearly impossible to teach black history in any way, shape or form. Um, and they banned a book on Ruby Bridges. That's incredible. That's incredible. I, if, if I could sit down with any of these parents, what I would say is, I, pro I mean, I'm a white mom. I have white kids. <laughs> and I can say definitively that, that representation is not indoctrination. Yeah. Your child reading a book about a, a queer family is not going to turn them queer. Your yeah, child reading right. a book from, from a Black protagonist is not going to make them hate themselves. It's right. just not. I think well, and there's so really much projection, right? There's so 100%. much projection. It's like, it's like, well, I think that because I hate myself when I hear about racism, then then that's a property of of the thing I'm being taught, not my own, you know, stuff to process. And I think, and and that's wild to me. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, to like, I had to laugh because I was on Twitter which is simultaneously the best and worst place, it is. you know, in the cosmos. I met you on Twitter, so that's a good thing. <laughs> um, but I got to see, you know, I saw this video clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about how, you know, we shouldn't take down these Confederate memorials because it wouldn't, if I was a Black person, I would want to know how far we've come. I'm like, but <laughs> you are literally not even making it possible for a person of color to evaluate what, their journey through this country has been like if we're going to erase all remnants of any black history how would a person even be positioned to say you know what things have gotten better um and and you know i learned about the civil war and i learned about these things and i can say that things are better now you should be able to make that decision based on actual learning and knowledge and and a critical approach to history not because it's been taken from you um, and just, man, it's so Thanos-like. Like, it it is, <laughs> and it's such a disservice, and it it really, um, it sells our kids short, because our, our kids are so, and you're a teacher, you know, they're so fantastically capable of complex, yeah. nuanced thought, and, and they when are. they have uh, the, the teachers, the experts that they are to guide and navigate those conversations around those tough topics. Yeah that's when they're doing like the most important learning of, of yeah. their, their childhood. And it's such a disservice to take away all of that hard, tough conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been a, that that's one thing that I'll never forget about my teaching career was how students were really able to ask critical questions and arrive at really incredible insights. Like you put this stuff in front of them 
I've always made a joke that anyone who thinks that it's easy to indoctrinate kids has never tried to enforce a seating chart like <laughs> on high schoolers. <laughs> like they don't just do what they're told and they don't just do they just don't just parrot the things that are um, said to them. And they're fully aware of what's happening um, in the policy space right now. But that was always my favorite thing about teaching is like, hey, we have we have some things in our history that are really hard to think about and really hard to reconcile. And, um, you know, I really recommend um, checking out the work of Dr. LeGarrette King, who was at the University of Missouri. He's at the University of Buffalo now. And he talks about this type of, that the study of history needs to be contentious. Like it needs mm -hmm. to recognize that, like we we can't continue to go down this path of saying, of, of a triumphalist interpretation of history. It's mm -hmm. gotta be, look, there are some unanswered questions and there are some unsolved conflicts that are still in front of us today. And we just need to be able to sit in that discomfort and think about like, dang, like what if everything just hasn't categorically always gotten better? What if there are enduring struggles? And, um, and then the visibility of people that are in our history. Like I think about Bayard Rustin, like the fact that he was a gay man is not just an incidental factoid about his existence. Everything he did in the civil rights movement and everything he did as Dr. King's top advisor, he did as a gay man. A gay man, yeah. And it is naive to think that you can compartmentalize parts of your identity in that way. And um, man, it's like y'all are being so unreasonable. We just want to acknowledge the existence of of all the different types of humans in this country. <laughs> it's it's so much to ask. It right? is such an interesting, it's such an interesting thing. Yeah, that this notion that um, that white kids can't handle discussions of of actual history, and I I really think that's that's untrue, and it's selling those kids short. Yeah. And I also think when I when I think about the anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans legislation and ideas that are out there, you know, I think that you and I come from a generation that these things were not talked about, like how to be in a healthy relationship was not talked about. Healthy consent was not talked about. I know an ECE teacher that teaches consent. You know how they teach it? By teaching that, hey, if a kid doesn't want you to hug them, you don't hug them. Like, I don't care if it's your friend you don't touch somebody when they tell you to stop and you are not allowed to just like put your hands on someone or kiss somebody and do that kind of thing these are four-year-olds do right and yeah. so like so i think about all the ways and i think these these um astroturf bad actors are an exact representation of why we need to center these ideas around gender and identity healthy relationships like i got news for you pal if your kid's not talking to you about it, then there's probably a reason for that. And 100%. if you and where are they going to go other and where will they go if they feel rejected and hated by their parents? They will find other places if to talk about these things. If kids do not feel safe at home, of course they're going to seek out their their trusted adults at school yeah. and that's, you know, that's we're grateful for those. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Deborah Offner wrote an incredible book called Educators as First Responders. And in it, she articulates exactly what you said, that oftentimes when a child is going through something, it is the teacher that knows before anybody else, before they go to a social worker, a school psychologist, a school nurse, 
it's usually a teacher who will recognize what they're experiencing, good or bad, right? Um, and, you know, that relationship has to really be celebrated. And so it's it's one of those things that's um, it's just incredible to me. So um, let's talk a little bit about successes. This you You've been a part of this movement for the last six years or so. Um, what are some of the successes that you have been a part of or that you have witnessed in the time um, that this this manufactured culture war has yeah. been waged? Well, I'm so glad I'm so glad that you asked me that because it is it, our heart is to put, you know, goodness and love into our community. Yeah. And that's that's what we like to do. Um, our proudest achievement is our a social initiative called the Classroom Library Project. We started that in 2018, and it's exactly what it sounds like. We focused on our um, historically underserviced and under-resourced schools, and we went into classrooms one at a time. You know, we we are an organization without a ton of funds. We knew we couldn't overhaul an entire school's library as <laughs> right, much as we would right. like to, but we could do one classroom at yep. a time. Yeah. And uh, that's what we did. We came in over the weekend, we painted, we brought in new bookshelves and comfortable oh, furniture amazing. and rugs and lights and artwork. Oh, wow. And then hundreds and hundreds of beautiful, brand new, inclusive and diverse literature. Wow. It was one of those projects that, you know, lots of people collect books and, and there's nothing wrong with used books and, and we're happy to have those for yeah. some things. But for this particular project, we wanted brand fucking oh. new books. Oh, the feeling of a new book. Yes. Beautiful, right? These these kids that are so often um, the the last on the the budget item list. Yep. We wanted them to to come in and see beautiful brand new books with characters that looked like them. Oh. And that's beautiful. We have we have put in twenty of those thus far. And we continue to do it as we have the budget and, and as we have the permission, I'll be honest with you, it's a little bit harder to get into the schools now con no. considering what's happening, but yeah. we were able to get 20 of those libraries installed um, before the madness. And, and so in the, uh, um, in the absence of some big shadowy funder um, <laughs> helping you provide these books, how have you been able to provide brand new books? Has it been you all just kind of digging into your pockets and seeing what you can do. How have you done that? Yes. Yeah, so our first two or three libraries, we crowdsourced and out of our own pockets, we did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we applied for, and we got a $25,000 grant Oof. to complete the project. And that That's was, beautiful. that was life-changing for us. It allowed us to really yeah. go crazy with buying as many, yeah. as many books as we could. And we did. It's like a book shopping spree. That's like heaven for me. It's kind of like go in here and get $25,000 worth of inclusive books. Yes. Like I don't, I think my life could end at that moment. And I would be like, I'm fulfilled. I am fulfilled right it now. It was, it was an amazing <laughs> thing. And I, it's important to note that we did not create those reading lists in a vacuum. We we were taking requests from teachers. We were consulting librarians and literacy experts, you know, talking it. to the people who know the kids. Um, yeah. So it was, it was like actually going really, to the grassroots, going to yeah. the actual grassroots. And it was such a beautiful collaborative project with, with our educators. Yeah. And it, it you know, 
spending so much time in our schools and getting to know our teachers, getting to know our administrators and our librarians gives us a firsthand view that all of this shit that they say is going on in public schools, yes. we know it's not happening because yes. we've spent the time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You've been there. You have the voices. You, your your process is incontrovertible. It's it's a process that's always been about all the people. I, lo I love that story and wish I was still teaching. However, people, if you are looking for something that you can do, not all localities are addressing this issue um, the way states like Tennessee are um, in a policy environment. I mean, it's, you know, in 23 years of teaching, kids always got so excited when we got new books, like whenever there were books and we were always doing go, you know, not go fund me. What's the um, donors choose. Mm -hmm. We're always doing donors choose projects. And it was always books. And it was always books that the kids wanted to read. And, you know, it's just such a beautiful thing. Um, obviously it's harder to get into those spaces, but is the classroom library project still something that you're trying to keep um, on the forefront for future work or anything like that? or current work? Is we, it best not to talk about it here no, so it can just kind of be <laughs> under the radar? <laughs> we are we are a lot quieter about it. Um, we do not, um, we don't publicly say the school that we're at or the teacher that we, yeah. that we helped, but uh, we are accepting, you know, in our, our local community, we are accepting teachers. Beautiful. If they reach out to us and tell us they want a classroom library, we will make it happen. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, we we will not cast too much light on that. It's important to keep that word sacred. Um, and that kind of gets to our last question, um, which is how might educators support uh, parents' efforts, particularly parents who are doing the work that you're doing? And, you know, especially I'm thinking about the folks who finally, you know, you, you mentioned how important it is for parents who do value this type of inclusive education to get off the sidelines and become involved. How do, how do we educators contribute to those efforts and support your work? Yeah, that's a tough question. I think, yeah. I think from my perspective, what teachers could do is really take care of themselves and take the time and the, the energy and the care that they need for their own emotional and mental well-being. The teachers that we that we work with are in just a, a really distressing state of, of being demoralized and feeling so overwhelmed. So I don't think we could ask any more of teachers other than we want you to be there for our kids. We want you to be the support for our kids. So you first need to take care of yourself. And if there's something that you need from the administration that you're not getting, whether it's pay or support or whatever, ask, ask the parents. Uh, that's, that's who we have become in our community. A lot of our teachers cannot express how they feel to our administration uh, for, for obvious reasons. So we, we often as parents um, are that voice for, for the things and the resources that our teachers and our support staff need. Thank you for saying that. It's, it's funny, I've only been out of the classroom for a few months and the situation in Denver Public Schools is nowhere near what I think teachers in your community are experiencing. But I'm, I'm reminded how often 
on the hard days and on the days when when you do feel attacked and when 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 you feel unsuccessful, how easy it is to internalize those things and say, well, if I was a better teacher, if I was better at this, if I had X, Y, and Z, if but it tends to be very much internalized by teachers. I think that's a that's a very intentional design of how um, schools are operated is to keep us siloed from each other and keep us disconnected from each other and communities. And for you to say that you're doing the right work. And the most important work is, is to keep yourself healthy in the ways and to reach out for that help. So I really appreciate you saying that. Um, and I think it takes a village. That's right. It takes a village. It really does. And I, and I think too, that, you know, when we start thinking about what enables these harmful things is all of us remaining separated and not connecting to each other. It's community that really comes to the rescue in these types of moments. So, um, Taylor, thank you for being with me here on Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. My pleasure. How do people find uh, the work that's being done by Moms for Social Justice? How how do they how do our listeners kind of get more of a sense of the day to day work that you all are doing? Sure. We're very active on social media where we share our uh, initiatives and our, our thoughts. Um, I run our Twitter page and that's where we are our most snarky. That is <laughs> yes. Twitter <laughs> um, snark. It's the best. Kind. Yes. <laughs> that's moms for SJ on Twitter. Um, on Facebook and Instagram, we are MSJ chat. You can always visit our website at momsforsocialjustice.us. Great. Folks, uh, Taylor Lyons is the co-founder and community outreach director of Moms for Social Justice. Uh, Taylor, thanks for being here. The The uh, last thing we do is um, I will uh, ramble just a little bit. And then when I cue you, we say stay dope together. All right, so it's stay dope, right? So for Taylor Lyons, for Moms for Social Justice, for those of us who are out here trying to engage in critical and powerful and honest educational practices. My name is Gerardo Munoz, and I'm wishing for you to stay focused, stay engaged, stay off those sidelines, stay reading, stay giving children books, and above all, make sure that you always stay, stay dope. dope. <laughs> Peace out, y'all. <laughs>